I was uh, wondering what sutta to start with from the Sutta Nipata this morning, and um, this copy of this book was already in here, so Tansuduko brought me to uh, the copy that was in the Majjhima Vestry, and it had uh, six bookmarks in one page. So I thought, oh, well, this is, uh, maybe I'll read whatever, wherever those six bookmarks are. So those six bookmarks were marking Book 1, Sutta 6, Decline. And this is the opposite of the Mangala Sutta. So uh, <clears throat> this is actually one they chant in Thailand, but we don't have it in our chanting book. But it is uh, quite a good teaching. And I'll just read this one and then go back into uh, reading a good chunk of Being Dhamma, Lumpurcha. Decline. I have heard that at one time the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anatta Pindaka's monastery. Then a certain deva in the far extreme of the night, her extreme radiance lighting up the entirety of Jetta's Grove, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, having bowed down to him, she stood to one side. As she was standing there, she addressed him with a verse. About the man in decline, we ask Gotama. Having come to question the Blessed One, what is the way leading to decline? Easily known is the one of good prospects. Easily known, the one in decline. The one of good prospects loves the Dhamma. The one in decline detests it. And this is the Deva. We know indeed that this is so. That's the first one in decline. May the Blessed One tell the second, what is the way leading to decline? The Buddha. The wicked are dear to him. The good he doesn't hold dear. He approves of the ideas of the wicked. That is the way leading to decline. The Deva. We know indeed that that is so. That's the second one in decline. May the Blessed One tell the third, what is the way leading to decline? The Buddha, prone to sleep, prone to company, the man with no initiative, lazy and known for his anger, that is the way leading to decline. The Deva, we know indeed that that is so, that's the third one in decline. May the Blessed One tell the fourth, what is the way leading to decline? The Buddha, though capable, one doesn't support one's mother or father. Old, their youth over and done. That is the way leading to decline. The Deva. We know indeed that that is so. That's the fourth one in decline. May the Blessed One tell the fifth. What is the way leading to decline? The Buddha. Whoever deceives with a lie, a Brahmin, contemplative, or other mendicant, that is the way leading to decline. The Deva. We know indeed that that is so. That's the fifth one in decline. May the Blessed One tell the sixth, what is the way leading to decline? The Buddha. The man of great wealth with golden food enjoys his luxuries alone. That is the way leading to decline. Deva, we know indeed that that is so. That's the sixth one in decline. May the Blessed One tell the seventh, what is the way leading to decline? The Buddha. The man proud of his birth, proud of his wealth, proud of his clan, 
despises his own relatives. That is the way leading to decline. But Deva, we know indeed this is so. That's the seventh one in decline. May the Blessed One tell the eighth what is the way leading to decline. And from now on, I'll just read the, because uh, the, the Deva just repeats himself each time, so I'll read the, just the Buddha's verses. The man debauched with women, debauched in drink, debauched in gambling, squanders his earnings. That is the way leading to decline. One uncontent with his own wife, misbehaves with women and the wives of others. That is the way leading to decline. His youth past, a man takes a young woman and, and jealous of her doesn't sleep. That is the way leading to decline. To place in authority a woman given to drink and squandering or a man of that sort, that's the way leading to decline. One of meager means, but great craving, born into a noble family who aspires to kingship, that is the way leading to decline. Contemplating these ones in decline in the world, the wise one, consummate and noble view, heads to a world auspicious. And then I'll read the next sutta as well. The outcast. I've heard on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove and Atapindika's monastery. Then in the early morning, after adjusting his lower robe and carrying his bowl and outer robe, he entered Savati for alms. Now at that time, in the house of the Brahmin Agika Bharadvaja, a sacrificial fire was burning and an offering was lifted up. Then the Blessed One, going through Savati on a methodical alms round, approached the house of Agika Bharadvaja. Agika Bharadvaja saw the Blessed One coming from afar and on seeing him said to him, Stop right there, you little shaveling. Right there, you little contemplative. Right there, you little outcast. When this was said, the Blessed One said to the Brahmin, Agika Bharadvaja, But do you know, Brahmin, what an outcast is or the actions that make one an outcast? No, in fact, Master Gotama, I don't know what an outcast is or the actions that make one an outcast. It would be good if Master Gotama taught me the Dhamma so I would know what an outcast is and the actions that make one an outcast. In that case, Brahman, listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, Master, the Brahman Agika Bharadvaja responded to the Blessed One. The Blessed One said, Whatever man is angry, resentful, evil, merciless, deceitful, and defective in his views, he should be known as outcast. Whoever here harms a living being, once born or twice born, who has no sympathy for a living being, he should be known as outcast. Whoever destroys or besieges villagers or towns, a notorious oppressor, he should be known as outcast. Whoever from villages or wilderness takes in a manner of theft what others claim is mine, he should be known as outcast. Whoever actually incurring debt when pressed to pay evades, saying, I'm in no debt to you, he should be known as outcast. Whoever desiring whatever the thing strikes a person going along a road to take whatever they have, he should be known as outcast. Whatever man for his own sake, the sake of another, or the sake of wealth, tells a lie when asked to bear witness, he should be known as outcast. 
Whoever misbehaves with the wives of relatives or friends by force or with their consent, he should be known as outcast. Whoever, though capable, doesn't support his mother or father, old, their youth over and done, he should be known as outcast. Whoever strikes and reviles with his speech mother or father, sister or brother, or mother-in-law, he should be known as outcast. Whoever asked about what's beneficial teaches what's not and gives counsel, concealing some points, he should be known as outcast. Whoever, doing an evil deed, wishes, may I not be known, acting in hiding, he should be known as outcast. Whoever, having gone to another's house, being offered pure food, doesn't honor the host in return when he comes to one's house, he should be known as outcast. Whoever deceives with a lie, a Brahmin, contemplative, or other mendicant, he should be known as an outcast. Whoever, when a Brahmin or contemplative appears at mealtime, reviles him with speech and doesn't give, he should be known as outcast. Whoever, wrapped in delusion, speaks here what is untrue, greedy for whatever, he should be known as outcast. Whoever exalts himself and disparages others, debased by his own pride, he should be known as outcast. Angry, mean, evil in his desires, miserly, dishonest, devoid of hiriotipa, devoid of shame and compunction, he should be known as outcast. Whoever heaps verbal abuse on an awakened one or her dis disciple, wanderer, or householder, he should be known as outcast. Whoever, though not an arahant, claims to be an arahant, he is a thief in this world with its brahmas, he is the vilest of outcasts. These are said to be outcasts, as I have proclaimed them to you. Not by birth is one an outcast, not by birth a Brahmin. By action one is an outcast, by action one is a Brahmin. Know too by this, as I give an example. Sopaka, the son of an outcast, was well known as Matanga. He, Matanga, attained the highest prestige, hard to gain. They came into his service, many noble warriors and Brahmins, mounting the divine chariot and the great stainless road. Dispassioned for sensual passion, he reached the world of the Brahmas. His birth didn't prevent him from reaching the world of the Brahmas. Though born into a family of scholars, Brahmins, with chants as their kinsmen, are repeatedly seen with evil deeds, blameworthy in the here and now, with a bad destination in the afterlife. Their birth doesn't prevent them from blame and a bad destination. Not by birth is one an outcast, not by birth a Brahmin. By action, one is an outcast, by action, one is a Brahmin. When this was said, the Brahmin Agika Bharadvaja said to the Blessed One, Magnificent Master Gotama, magnificent, just as if you were to place upright what was overturned, to reveal what was hidden, to show the way to one who was lost or to carry a lamp into the dark so that those with eyes could see forms. In the same way has Master Gotama, through many lines of reasoning, made the Dhamma clear. I go to Master Gotama for refuge, to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of monks. May Master Gotama remember me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge from this day forward for life. And we'll continue with Lumpur Cha. The Buddha taught us to look at ourselves. He did not point up the, to the heavens or down to the earth, at the mountains, the clouds, or the sky. The Dhamma is something that is with us. If we come to know ourselves, attachment and grasping start to wither away and decrease, to back off. 
It is because of seeing that this can happen. If there is no seeing, there is no decrease, no breathing room. Practitioners of Dhamma should know how much fruit is born of their efforts. It is not that one practices and has no idea. One should definitely know, know what is going on with oneself, whether one is practicing correctly or wrongly, and what kind of results one is getting. If people do not know this yet, they are not getting any fruit from their practice. There is nothing really going on. It's just like they're doing things because someone told them to, blindly following along with the group. Someone told them, so they do it, with nothing happening on their side. The Buddha wanted us to have wise discernment, to be astute and employ wisdom, to see and know things in the present moment. It's not a matter of waiting for death so we can know. If we don't see and know now, we will not know later on. We must see now. If we investigate the body until there is dispassion and detachment, we will see that we are like the bird in the trap or the fish in the tank. The hunter or owner can take us out and destroy us at any moment. Our limbs, senses, and organs, our bodies, can break down on us at any time. Such is the characteristic of these things. We cannot stop it from happening. They will not obey our commands. Why? Because they are not real. They are not actually ourselves nothing dependable. They are not really definitely our legs, our arms, our eyes, or ears. That is conventional reality, mere designations. They are only spoken of as ours. If we all contemplate these things, these heaps, the aggregates of form, feeling, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness, you can call them the five aggregates, the dhammas of name and form, or simply mind and body, which is what it all comes down to then it is not something else, something far away. The Buddha said, Bhikkhus, whoever watches over their minds, they shall escape the snares of Mara. But do we really know the mind? It tells us to cry and we cry. It says laugh and we laugh. When it says to crave something, we crave it. These things are not so difficult to see. The mind should actually be easy to teach, but people don't teach it. If it gets angry, discipline it immediately. Take up the stick and it will behave, but we don't train ourselves like this. If we really did teach ourselves, oh, how could we sleep like we do? When we sleep, it would not just be a matter of falling into a stupor every night. Teach yourself this every day. When you put your head on the pillow, contemplate the in and out breath. Think to yourself, how about that? Tonight I am still breathing. Tell yourself this every day. You needn't do a lot of chanting and recitation. Am I still breathing? You wake up in the morning and think, hey, I'm still alive. The day passes, the night comes again, and you ask yourself once more. Ask yourself, if I lie down, will I get up again? Rest for a little while and get up. When you get tired again, ask yourself again. Day after day, you have to do this. If you keep at it, things will come together and you will see. You will see the truth of what is taken to be self and others. You will see what is convention and supposition. You will understand what all these things really are. Then that which is heavy becomes light. That which is long becomes short. That which is difficult becomes easy. But you have to generate enthusiasm. Then it can be done. If you are one of the lazy ones who just wants to sleep, what will you get from that? If you look outside, you won't see. We have it already if we look. Having been born, it's all here. As soon as things arise, we can see immediately that they are impermanent, leading to suffering, 
and not ourselves. We see this and we recognize that we are like this and that others are like this. This is the first step in contemplating Dhamma. This is the path that has an end. This is the path to ending birth. This is the path to ending death. If we pay attention, we will know, just like when we are working in the fields. Is the sun high yet? Is evening coming? Just by looking at the sun, we know. When dusk is coming, there is no more we can do, and it's time to return home. When we work, we have to know the time and occasion. If we pay attention throughout the day, then we know. Is it time to go to the fields? Is it time to return home from the fields? If we are looking, we will necessarily see and know. If we are continuously looking at mind and body, we will likewise know. Was it like this before? How is it now? Is it like a small child? If we think like this and investigate, the mind will turn. The heart will become forlorn. It will feel the insecure desolation and loneliness that result from a life of delusion. Continuing to look here will cause the mind to turn over. If it does not turn over, we cannot see the Dhamma. There must be causes. Things arise from causes. When we make efforts to practice Dhamma, we are creating causes. For example, a husband and wife live together. They experience love as well as disagreements and quarrels. If one of them dies, leaving the other one alone, where there was a loving couple, now there is only one. That person will most probably go find a monastery. Like people who are sick, when an illness happens, they will immediately think about finding a doctor. If they are not sick, they don't have such an idea. Things that happen thus are called the cause. The feelings of people work like this. If we are living comfortably and happily, we don't think about these things and the mind will not turn. Likewise, in practicing Dhamma, we are supposed to contemplate to the point where we develop world weariness and detachment, but we can't do it. We listen to the teachings. The venerable teachers use different approaches and similes to instruct us, to help us see clearly. What is the hair like? What is the truth of the teeth, skin, nails? Look. Are they fresh and youthful as before? Are they aging? Are they changing? So the Buddha told us to contemplate our bodies. See within your own body. If you see, it's just as if you have an infection, a disease, or some unbearable pain. You will only think about finding a cure for it. You will naturally want a doctor in medicine. That's natural. If the fever or pain increases and won't go away, this will be your only thought, to find a doctor. But previously, before you were ill, such thoughts weren't relevant. If someone had told you to go to a doctor, you would have had no interest. Now there is a cause. Our meditation is similar. Why are we told to contemplate the hair, skin, and so on, these things that we already have? This is where the cause lies, the cause for dispassion, weariness, and detachment. There can be knowledge here. There can be delusion here. If there is knowledge, delusion ceases. If there is delusion, knowledge ceases. If there is seeing, blindness ceases. The Buddha constantly talked about contemplating birth, aging, illness, and death. What was that all about? The causes are right here. Speaking about death leads to detachment and dispassion in regard to this life. If you keep on investigating this point, entering deeper and deeper into it, weariness with the world and detachment will come. Investigating Dhamma, you will eventually see Dhamma, meaning the truth. And when you see Dhamma, you will be able to find peace. Where else would it take you? 
This is the cause, the meditation called establishing mindfulness on the body or contemplating the body. From the top of the head to the soles of the feet, back again from the feet to the top of the head, over and over again. Meditate like this to give rise to weariness and dispassion, to make the mind turn over. For example, you have a family, a home, and ample possessions. When everything is going well, the mind is not likely to turn because you are happy and comfortable. Just as when you are sailing in a boat, if the mind is well built, if the boat is well built and the water is smooth, who is thinking about swimming? But if the boat starts sinking, swimming becomes important. Or could you remain indifferent? Some people ask, what's the deal? Always telling us to meditate on these body parts. Well, this is how it is for us. If you are sailing along, you might not be thinking that you need to be able to swim, but you're really much better off if you've already learned how. If the boat starts sinking, will you have any concern other than swimming? When we meditate on this and really see the truth of it, the result will come by itself. When you really make up your mind through having seen impermanence, suffering, and an absence of self in this body, you are called one who has contemplated the Dhamma, one who is practicing Dhamma. When you know this one point, you will know many things. Having mastered this point, your practice will roll along unimpeded, seeing instability, unsatisfactoriness, and lack of self in your own body and the bodies of others, internally and externally. The source of virtue is here. This is where you have to look. This is what the Buddha taught. He did not talk about things that are extraneous, about places people do not go or things people cannot see. He pointed out things that are facts of our own existence. When we sit, these things are sitting with us. When we walk, they are walking with us. When we lie down to sleep, they are lying down with us. Yet having these things inherent within us, even to this extent, we still do not see. It's like with the skeleton we keep in the meditation hall. Folks will talk about it, but they really don't see it. Some look at it and feel frightened. They flee the hall. They don't want to look. These are people who do not see. If they really saw, they would know no fear. If you were afraid, where will you run? The skeleton is always right here with you. Think about it. Even if you run away, it's running with you. Wherever you go, it stays with you. What else is it that you are afraid of? The places of escape are exhausted. Recognizing this means you see. Then there is dispassion. Oh, things really are impermanent, suffering and not self. When you see a skeleton, you know it's the same as yourself. Sitting there chewing your beetle and smoking your tobacco, the skeleton is there. Coming and going, walking around, the skeleton is there. Chattering and gossiping, it is there. It is just like you. In the future, you will become just like the skeleton in the hall. Everyone will become like this. Before, that skeleton was a living person, just like you. Later, we will become like it. Are you afraid? Is this true or not? Where can you run? So you look at one person and you know he is the same as any other person, the same as yourself. When you see one person in this way, you understand all people in the universe. We are all the same. There is no substantial difference. For the greater part, we are all just the same. Please see the truth of this. Before, the skeleton was like us. Later, we will be just like it. The mind will change from this investigation. Keep up your investigation and you will realize that things are not genuine or reliable. 
The only thing that is genuine is the accumulation of good or evil. In this life, good leads to good, bad leads to bad. Right thinking leads you in right paths, while wrong thinking leads you astray. This is occurring right now. This is the only thing that is real, and the results will always return to follow after you. Even our own skeleton cannot follow us. We certainly don't need to consider family, friends, wealth, and possessions reliable. Starting from our very own bones, there is nothing genuine. The only thing that is real is that which leads us to various states of becoming and birth, meaning good and bad deeds of body, speech, and mind. Doing good brings good. Acting in unwholesome ways brings pain. This is what is really certain and true, and only this. So the Buddha wanted us to look into this matter. We don't need to think about gaining anything in this life. Give up unwholesome ways and practice good while you are still living. Once you die, there's nothing you can do. The Buddha wanted us to see the urgency of the situation and hurry up and get to work. You still have eyes and ears that are functioning. Consciousness has not yet departed from your body, so you can understand things. Throw it away. If you throw it away while you're still living, it will bring lightness. What does throwing away mean? Strive to give up, to look, to investigate. When the consciousness departs and leaves a corpse behind, what can you accomplish? They will carry the body away to be cremated or buried, and that's the end of the story. We have our traditions for honoring and supposedly helping the dead, and we employ all sorts of idioms in our language to describe how we gain merits from such practices. People may put out rice cakes, saying that the dearly departed will benefit. Then they sit there enjoying the cakes themselves. But where, the de but where is the deceased at that time, and what benefit does he or she get? It's better to train yourselves. The Buddha did not praise the dead. He praised the opportunity of this human birth. It's important to practice while you are alive. If there's something wrong in you, give it up now. If there's something good, practice it now. These are your two friends, your refuge. In the present, this will be your refuge. And throughout your future lives, it will be your place of refuge. The various material possessions are only what they are. Isn't that so? Do you see how young people fight over these things now and how it leads them nowhere? We are old enough, so we should know to stop doing that and seek tranquility and relinquishment instead. We've done enough of the worldly business already. It's time to stop now, isn't it? Even though you are living in a house, you should contemplate these things. You are not ordained, but let the mind be ordained, investigating the truth. Worldly accomplishments and possessions only go so far. They really do not lead to any ultimate kind of benefit. They exist within their limits. They will flow away, so let them flow. The Buddha wanted us to meditate and see. If we contemplate in this way, it will be what the scriptures call the preliminary training, the first step. It will destroy the attachment to our own bodies. Destroy our bodies? What does this mean? Through seeing impermanence, suffering, and a lack of self there, we realize weariness and dispassion, and real faith will arise. Please contemplate this. The first result will be that with the arising of world weariness and dispassion, you will refrain from harmful actions. When you stop this, it is sila. If you don't understand these things, you don't know what is kamma and what is wrongdoing. If you do know, you will stop. Whatever is not good or beautiful, you will stop doing by way of body and speech. That is morality. When you give up all wrongdoing, there is morality. Having given up wrongdoing, the mind is composed and can attain samadhi. 
When the mind is composed in samadhi, thus wisdom will be born. When the Buddha began teaching, some disciples became enlightened in their seats just by hearing his words. Some attained the arahant stage, the end of the path, right there on that single occasion. So when did they keep precepts? When were they practicing meditation and developing samadhi? They realized weariness with samsara and dispassionate detachment, and they were able to stop. That condition is sila. Then, with no wrongdoing in the heart, but only coolness and tranquility, there was samadhi. From this state of calm, the mind was able to contemplate things and know them as they are. Hearing Dhamma, contemplating Dhamma thus, pure morality and the rest arose, and this was the path. In that moment, it happened. Now, people like us have a lot of doubt and uncertainty, and we think, oh, they must have had really a lot of good kama behind them to do that. But it happens in the present also. It really can. If we listen and understand clearly, it can happen. The mind gives up. It lets go. If it can't let go right now, it can do so tomorrow or the day after, at another sitting in the near future. Not knowing clearly today, it will know tomorrow. Not realizing tomorrow, it will realize the day after tomorrow. It must know if we really take an interest in the Dhamma. When hearing the name of Dhamma, don't get the idea that it is anything other than nature. We have it. We are it. Whatever you practice, strive to make it genuine. Strive to make the mind see, see impermanence, see unsatisfactoriness, see the absence of a self. See that nothing is permanent or lasting throughout this world of ours. That is all. When your view is like this, whatever you look at becomes truth that makes you turn inward to see. External phenomena are no different from yourself. Keep turning inward continuously, and everything is Dhamma. When you see animals, Dhamma is there. Large creatures are Dhamma. Small creatures are Dhamma. Even when you see rocks, earth, or grass, it's all Dhamma, because all of this is nature. Seeing Dhamma, you will practice Dhamma accordingly. This is what the Buddha's teaching is about. It's not something else that is distant from us. We are speaking about the source of the path. If you have faith and seek the Dhamma, where will you look for it? Seeking in one monastery, searching it out in some other monastery, going to forests here and there, it just remains the way it is. In the forest, the Dhamma is in yourself, right there in your body. If you go to learn in a monastery, it is pointed out the same way, right there within yourself. In listening to teachings, the principle is the same. It's not necessary to hear a lot. You should listen in order to understand and know what it is all about. What are the important points? What should be investigated? How should you practice? How do you want to train the mind? You want to liberate the mind from suffering to go beyond conventional reality. Where is this conventional reality? Where is the suffering? How do you transcend it? Happiness and suffering are the great teacher. Love and hate are your great teacher. This is where the path is. If you are attached to feelings of love, they will lead you to pain. Look into this. These feelings very directly point out the path. If you are attached to any of them, that is a mistake. Looking into this, you can really come to know. Why is it that we are told to transcend the feelings of love and attachment? Take a good look. In your lives, at home or elsewhere, when you are very attached to someone, loving them more than others, it leads you to suffering. Think about it if you are skeptical. You have to know what this affection is about. Don't throw yourself away. 
don't fall asleep, don't let your mind slumber, love for people, attachment to possessions, these only bring suffering, remember this. If it won't stick in your mind, write it down, look at it, it really is the truth. When you have feelings of love and hate, you need to look into them, they are teaching you, showing you not to fall into extreme ways. Impulses are trying to lead you into the left or right-hand paths of indulgence or suppression. The teachings talk of the extremes of indulgence and sensual pleasure and self-torment. When the Buddha was first enlightened to the Dhamma, this is what he taught about. These things were true in the Buddha's time, and they are true for us now. Where can you look to understand the truth of this? Just in your own mind. The tendency we have is that when we love someone, we want to be with them all the time, and when we feel hatred towards someone, we don't even want to be near them. Do any of you have these feelings? Please look and teach yourselves. Do you see how they lead you to suffer? This is talking about the noble truths, suffering and its origin, which is love and attachment. You can see the fact of this if you look at your lives. Are your attachments and anxieties something good and beneficial? Don't let your minds get caught in unreasonable attachment. It's as if you eat a banana and toss the peel away, but when the chickens and other animals want to eat it, you still feel possessive and concerned over it, unable to relinquish attachment. With gain, you are elated. With loss, you are depressed. This is just what the Buddha talked about when he said to avoid the two extremes. Talk to your mind to make it capable of avoidance. Therefore, practitioners of Dhamma, having heard the teachings, need to investigate these feelings of attachment and aversion toward people as they occur and continuously make effort to train their minds. Looking at this and avoiding extreme reactions will support the mind and support the path. Don't fall in the ditch. Love is a ditch. Hatred is a ditch. The Buddha really understood these things. Through his practice and enlightenment, he saw that they are truly impermanent, full of suffering, and without self-essence. When love comes, put it aside. When hatred comes, put it aside. If you are not able to put them down, train the mind to do so. These things by themselves are not going to bring peace of mind. This is the Dhamma. This is what the Buddha's dispensation is. You have to look right here. You have to seek peace here. This is the path to Nibbana. You want to go running after those things? You'll fall into the lower realms. Tell your mind that. Don't get attached to giving meaning to such things. Don't you go to work in the fields? You know how to shout at the buffalo so it will obey you and go where you want it to. So why can't you shout at yourself and get some control of where your mind goes? We are talking about reaching the place where there are no causes, where causes are exhausted. If there is love or hate, it means causes exist. If there is a cause, there will be a result. If there is birth, there will be death. This is how it is for us. When there is love and attachment, there is going to be hatred and aversion. If we go to heavenly states, we will also end up going to hell. Going to hell, we then go to heaven. It's like this, the realm of becoming a birth. So the Buddha wanted us to investigate. It's not something that only applies to certain people. These principles are universally true. So where should you practice your samadhi? What will you meditate on? When you see, you let go immediately. Make your efforts here. Train the mind with skillful means to make it pliable, just as a blacksmith heats metals so often and can then shape it to any useful tool he desires. Just so, we soften our minds with training and precepts, with restraint, 
with the practice of meditation and with investigation, our minds will then soften and surrender to become peaceful. That's the end of the chapter. Seeing Dhamma. One thing that struck me about that is I, I like how uh, Longport Cha talks about uh, getting to the place where you're not creating causes, and then he links that with that's the same as if there's birth, there's death. Like uh, creating a cause, there's going to be a result. Just a brilliant exposition. Okay, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really quite true. And also what I'm kind of really touched by is, is that uh, it's obvious that Lumpur is talking to the villagers. And he's, you know, That's right. you know, he's not talking philosophy, he's talking about living. And uh, this is on, a, he's not talking down to sort of uneducated villagers. He's, he's sort of encouraging people to realize their potential. And uh, yeah, they, if you've been to Thailand, it's like yelling at the buffaloes. You've, you've seen the farmers, ah! <laughs> he's telling them to do that with their minds. Get a good image there. Questions? Uh, yes, I believe he touched on it a, a little bit, but I wanted to hear what uh, maybe what anyone else had to say on uh, sort of trying to maintain some level of continuity of mindfulness between like nighttime and going to sleep and, and waking up. I oftentimes notice that, you know, by the end of the day, like I, I feel very sort of settled and, and present and aware, and then I wake up in the morning and I find myself, you know, relitigating old arguments and, and all over the place, and I build back up to the next night and then repeat the process. So mm. any advice there would be much appreciated. Well, I think one of the things is just recognizing that there is progress. I mean, and, you know, okay, this mind can be trained, and even though one recognizes that it does change, um, uh, it it can <laughs> you can train it for the better, so it's just getting that encouragement and and uh, you know a lot and and part of that uh, trying to carry that continuity through the 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 sleep process is is actually really paying using the the as one is falling asleep uh, setting the intention of being mindful through the sleep process, like sometimes uh, just by lying down in a, as the Buddha sort of said, laying down on the right hand side and <clears throat> setting one's, one's, one's mindfulness uh, in place and uh, making the intention to uh, be alert when one wakes up. Just setting those intentions carries through the through the sleep process and, um, and it, you know, it takes time for that to, to really kick in, but one realizes that one can't because oftentimes like sleep is is the okay I don't have to practice now I can just sort of um, annihilate myself in sleep <laughs> sort of oh, put down that burden of taking responsibility for the mind I'll just sort of disappear into into oblivion uh, but you know it's that that setting a quite a different intention and setting that intention to to be alert and, and, and present as, as as much as one can um, so it, it 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 and it does you build up a momentum also um, I remember I think it was often someone who said when you wake up in the morning um, 
don't trust anything. <laughs> Just don't believe it. Yeah, don't buy into a thousand dollars of it. This is all, you know, the lies. <laughs> and, uh, and I find that true, too. You know, if, I, if I succumb to, you know, waking up and then kind of allowing the mind to <clears throat> start go off into something that doesn't feel very skillful or just is negative or whatever.